Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob, and this week I have uh, a kind of an offbeat episode. It's not so much of a uh, the production of a, a recipe or, or making a dish. It's more of a process for manufacturing an ingredient, so to speak. We're going to be making maple syrup this week, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, a little bit of the history of sugaring the the trees that you're going to be looking to tap to produce this as well as the actual you know, production method for reducing tree sap into maple syrup if i sound a little sniffly <laughs> on this episode uh, the reason is that yesterday i got something in my eye and it scratched my eye and uh, it's called a corneal abrasion, and it's I get one every once in a while. I wear contacts. I live in the country, so you know, between pollen and you know traipsing through the woods and everything, eh, every once in a while, some piece of debris gets into my eye and causes some discomfort. And uh, you know, whenever you have some irritation in your eyes, your nose comes along for the ride. So uh, if I'm real sniffly, I'll try to avoid doing it too much while I'm talking here, and then I'll try to cut out as much of a as much of it as I can in editing, but I'm a little behind schedule just because last night I couldn't, I couldn't abide by sitting here and talking and then staring at a very bright computer monitor for the editing process. So I'm just going to run it through in one, one go here, right up here at the top. You, the standard thing goes, check out the uh, show notes for the episode. We'll have uh, a simple text description of like what you're doing here. It's not so much of like ingredients and measurements and all that kind of stuff because we are just manufacturing maple syrup, but we'll have a, a plain text description of the process there. I'll also have links to some of the equipment that you would need to get started with this this despite this being like a, a not an industrial process but it is it is like a manufacturing process despite that uh, you can get started making your own maple syrup relatively inexpensively you're looking at i don't know 25 to 50 dollars maybe 100 dollars worth of equipment depending on um what kind of collection vessels you want to use or if you have to buy a bunch of buckets or something like that so we'll have that. We'll also have the the imager link to you know the the photographic like step by step of how this whole thing plays out. I want to start off by talking a little bit about the history of maple syrup production. Um, this is a this is kind of a North American uh, phenomenon, and it actually predates the arrival of Europeans to North America. Native Americans made maple syrup, which you know whenever I when I heard that when I was doing a little bit of research. I was surprised because I think it's relatively well known that Native Americans did not have extensive um, metalworking capabilities. Obviously, they produced things, objects, out of gold and silver, copper to a lesser extent, but they certainly didn't have like iron works. So you didn't have like cast iron pots and cookware. Now, of course, you could have copper cookware, but it's my understanding that Native American copper work generally focused on things like fasteners and hardware and jewelry and not, you know, large scale durable goods like cookware. I could be mistaken on that, but it's kind of irrelevant because the uh, the method that Native Americans would use to 
make maple syrup would be to collect the sap in hollowed out logs. Now, whenever I say hollowed out logs, I'm not I'm not talking about like, um, you know, you, you watch an old Disney movie and every log in the forest is like a tunnel and that, that, that the protagonist can hide in from danger or something like that. I'm thinking more in the, in the, along the lines of like the dugout canoes or using rounds, which if you're, you're cutting cordwood, you're looking at like 18 to 24 inch rounds and then chiseling out the hard heartwood in the middle to create essentially a, a vessel that can hold liquid. The sap would be poured into these vessels and then rocks that were heated on a fire would be placed into the liquid to very quickly boil off a quantity of, of water and turning the water content into steam. Despite this, you can imagine this uh, process would be very time consuming and tedious and would have very low yields compared to, you know, modern sugaring operations. Then after Europeans arrived in North America, they obviously brought with them uh, cast iron pots and other metal cookware that could be used to a little bit more efficiently um, boil off the sap to produce syrup. So that's interesting. I mean, this is a uniquely North American product uh, that predates European settlement. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, something cool that you can get into and produce a, a certainly a, a product that is recognizable in its taste, but also comparable in quality to some of the best maple syrup in the world. Now, as far as the maple trees themselves, if you do some research on the internet, it'll say like, oh, you know, any, any maple tree technically is suitable for making syrup. And then it'll list off different varieties of maple trees that you can use. I have noticed that I, I don't, never really see Japanese maple <laughs> mentioned in those discussions, and for good reason. I mean, they're they're fairly diminutive. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to tr tap Japanese maple trees to collect sap. I think that would be a fool's errand. But when it comes to you know your sugar maple, red maple, black maple, silver maple, and box elder trees like that. Um, all of them are suitable for making maple syrup. Conventional wisdom is that the sugar concentration in the sugar maple is highest. So that would be the most desirable of the trees to use because you would get more syrup resulting from your, your boil than you would from a lower concentration of sugar. However, it seems that the, the range of sugar concentrations across different varieties of maple trees is fairly tightly constrained. There isn't a huge gap between the most sugar concentrated maple varieties and the least sugar concentrated maple varieties. I, I don't know if, if the science has changed on this. I distinctly remember at one point in time, the sugar concentration that you would find for sugar maples would range between three and five percent. And then, you know, for example, silver maples would be down like one to three percent. So obviously the sugar maple would be superior um, in that case. However, everything that I've seen recently kind of puts the uh, sugar maple concentration between two and three percent and other, you know, lesser concentrated maple varieties like like silver maple down, you know, between one, like one and a half percent to two and a quarter percent, which means that they on the on the low end of the sugar maple and the high end of the silver maple, they overlap, which means that there isn't that much of a difference between maple varieties. Uh, you'll still see websites saying that silver maples are least are less desirable because they have a very watery sap with a low sugar concentration. 
but any maple variety will do. Me personally, I mean, I could go up into the woods and find red maple or sugar maple and tap those, but then, you know, then you're dealing with not being able to monitor your buckets from the kitchen as I can by tapping the uh, silver maples in the just in the backyard. The reason that you can make syrup from the tree sap of maple trees is is basically the uh, a function of plant life in general. If you remember back to, oh boy, what would it be like fifth grade science class when you learn about, uh, you know, plants, animals, fungi, stuff like that. Tree leaves in the, in the, in the individual cells of the leaves have these little organelles called chloroplast. And those chloroplasts contain a substance called chlorophyll, which of course gives plants their green color and allows them to undergo photosynthesis converting or combining the energy from the sun with carbon dioxide to create sugars that are used, metabolized by the tree and then facilitates the growth of trees. During the later spring, summer, early fall, when trees are leafed out, they are, you know, undergoing photosynthesis constantly producing a relatively large amount of sugar a lot of that sugar is then stored in the roots as like a starchy mass when you get into the late winter early spring and temperatures start to rise the tree will sort of wake up and start absorbing water from the ground to dilute the sugars in the roots and then the vascular system of the tree will transport that diluted sugar up through the trunk and into the branches to facilitate the bulging of the leaf buds and you know the preparation for leafing out in the spring. So it's at that time whenever the temperature kind of starts to straddle between freezing and you know the upper 40s or lower 50s or whatever that you can assume that maple trees are waking up and they're going to start pumping the sap um, from the roots up into their branches and uh, producing these leaf buds. So at that point, if you tap a tree, drill a hole into a tree and place a spile in there, it will allow that sap to, uh, well, it's not that it allows it to flow. It prevents it from moving vertically. It'll get to the get to the hole and then gravity takes over and it flows out of that spile into your collection vessel. You know, in the past week, here, I mean, I'm, I live on Tabard Farm. It's a homestead in southwestern Pennsylvania. So in the past week, we had this uh, heat wave, so to speak, where temperatures got very moderate for a period of time, and then they got really warm. There was one day last week that was like 70 degrees at the beginning of February. It's ridiculous. But given that, it was like, this is the perfect weather for tapping the trees because overnight the temperature is down, you know, right around freezing, right below freezing. And then starting early in the morning, it rises above freezing and then higher, higher, higher throughout the day. So you know that the trees are going to be uh, producing a lot of sap um, in their lower trunks. So we went out and we tapped the trees that we do every year. And I tell you what, the, the flow this year is remarkable. I mean, we have gotten a huge quantity of sap. I'm going to be boiling for weeks at this point, <clears throat> but I started the boil and basically kept a batch separate to continue to, to reduce and produce actual syrup so that I would have a product for this episode. But there are, you know, 30, 40 gallons still waiting over over in my sugar shack, aka the barn, <laughs> that will 
you know, continue to be reduced and produce more syrup as we go through the season. So how do you tap a tree? Well, you know, before we get into how you tap a tree and all this stuff, because uh, we had this sort of unseasonably warm weather from I mean, all the way from Minnesota down the eastern seaboard, you know, online on social media and different websites, people are sharing their experience with uh, making maple syrup. And in the comments, it's, it's kind of remarkable how... I don't, I don't want to say this like uh, derisively, but like how little the average person knows about what maple syrup is, where it comes from, how it's made, stuff like that. A lot of people seem to be under the impression that you tap a tree and maple syrup comes out of the tree. And that is not the case at all. There is an enormous amount of labor and energy that goes from trans, uh, transforming the, the raw maple sap into the finished maple syrup. It's very simple. It's just time consuming and energy intensive. But uh, that's that kind of inspired me to do this episode because I was like, hey, uh, obviously there is a thirst for this particular type of knowledge. And um, yeah, I've been doing this for eight years. I'm not an expert by any measure, but I can reliably make eh, a year's worth of maple syrup year in and year out. So let's, uh, let's go with that. <laughs> Tapping a tree, what we use... You can just use a drill bit and, you know, you, if you look online, it'll tell you specifically like, I'll oh, use a, you know, a three eighths inch drill bit or a, I don't know, seven sixteenths, something close to a half inch or whatever. Uh, but I have found that the spiles that you can just order on Amazon or pick up at you know, various uh, rural centric retailers like <laughs> Tractor Supply or Rural King or whatever, they are different sizes. Like uh, I bought some new spiles this year on Amazon and they are um, slightly bigger than the spiles that I've had uh, from prior years, but they're plastic. So they break you know, whenever you're pulling them out of the tree, sometimes they break when you're pounding them into the tree or whatever. So you have to replenish those occasionally, but they are different sizes. So you got to find a drill bit that will be comparable to the size of the spile. You want it to be like exactly the same size or maybe a little smaller. If you have plastic spiles, they will compress when they go into the drilled hole, but you want it to be a tight fit so that there isn't anywhere else for the sap to go except through the spile. Now, what is a spile? Spile is just a hard plastic tube. It can be a metal tube also, but it's a uh, it's like a stent that you place into the hole. It's not holding the hole open the way a stent does in a blood vessel, but what it does is it directs the sap out. So it's not just leaking out of the hole and then it can come out and it can drip into a collection vessel. Speaking of collection vessels, you may have seen uh, sugaring operations where, you know, the metal spile or the plastic spile is pounded into, into the drilled hole on the tree and then like a uh, galvanized metal uh, collection vessel is hung on the spile and the sap drips into it that way. That is you know, perfectly uh, reasonable and effective ways of uh, collecting sap. I prefer to use um, this plastic tubing that connects onto the end, to the end of the spile and then I can direct that down into like a five gallon bucket. Um, I do, I usually have lids on those buckets and then I drill holes in the lids to, uh, to thread the plastic tubing through that prevents, you know, debris from getting in there. If it rains in the middle of the night, you don't get your bucket just full of rainwater, that kind of thing. It also allows you to do, to divert multiple of the, uh, taps, multiple plastic tubing runs into the same bucket so that you get a full bucket. Uh, on a faster turnover than 
than if you were just hanging a single collection vessel on a spile. The tubing, a lot of times the spiles and the tubings can be packaged together, like they'll come in a set of 10 or 25 of each, and uh, they're relatively inexpensive. I think uh, the, the the replacements that I purchased this year were $21.95 or $25 or something like that. So that's why I say that your, your startup cost for getting into this hobby or this you know, activity is relatively low. I mean, you get the spiles. If you have clean buckets, you can use those. Uh, you can buy buckets, obviously, for a whole range of prices from less than $4 at Rural King up to you know, $10, $15 for fancy screw-on lids and food-grade plastic. Now, when it comes to the type of plastic, yeah, food-grade plastic would be ideal. But from my perspective, what I'm thinking is, like, the sap isn't sitting in there for very long. You're collecting it. Um, once the bucket is filled, if, it, if you have a good run of sap, if it's flowing fairly quickly, uh, the turnover between you know, collecting the sap and getting it into the boiler essentially um, is very short. So I'm not too concerned about just using the cheapest five gallon bucket that I could find. I bought 10, 10 new ones. So they were fresh and clean from Rural King for $3.49, $3.99 a piece, something like that. And um, I didn't even check if they were food grade plastic. I'm assuming they are not because of how cheap they were. But again, you know, the, the sap is sitting in there for a couple of hours. It's not like you're storing it for long term. So uh, let's talk about the uh, the boiling and reduction process. If your sap has a constant, I mean, if it's the mythical 5% concentration that I distinctly remember reading in a long time ago for the sugar maple tree, then 100 gallons of sap would produce more than 5 gallons of um of syrup, you look at like a 40 to 1 conversion um, because there will still be some residual water in the resulting syrup. You're not going to boil it down to where it's pure sugar because then it would it would candy. It would, it would become hard, uh, very uh, thick and viscous, if not, you know, rock hard in the worst case. So you're going to have a, a very low water content there, um, but there will still be water present. So it's not like fit, you know, if it's 5%, 100 gallons doesn't reduce down to five gallons of syrup because that would be 100% of the resulting product would be the uh, the sugar content in the sap and there, there will still be some water there. But if you're looking at a more reasonable estimate of like one to 2% um, uh, sugar content, then 100 gallons of sap would produce, you know, somewhere between two and four gallons of syrup. So once you've uh, tapped your trees, and the way that you tap, you can look online for this, you can, you can Google it, but usually I, I'll tap them, you know, three to four feet up, depending on the maturity of the tree. A, a bigger, more mature tree, you can go a little bit further up. Uh, if it's a smaller tree, keep it a little closer to the ground, but it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, it's basically uh, a foot or two above the top of the bucket, more or less, as a as a rule of thumb. Sometimes what people will recommend is if you look at the way the roots are kind of like uh, transitioning into the ground, like you can see where the where the big roots of the tree are and how they they flow into the trunk. And sometimes the trunk will be have like a scalloped edge around it where like a big root on one side and a big root on the other side will kind of merge and there'll be a divot between the two because the tree is growing faster where it is in the direct line of the flow of the sap coming from the big roots. If you see like a large root going up into up into the trunk, it's a good idea to tap in a, you know, a, a linear fashion along that root. Like that, that root flows into the tree, tap 
uh, in line with uh, with that wood, and you'll have like this direct pathway into hopefully a prodigious flow of sap. Sometimes when you drill your tap holes and you insert your spiles, it might take a few minutes or a few hours before the sap really starts flowing, especially if you do it early in the morning whenever it's cold still and the sap hasn't really started flowing. In our case, we tap these trees and they start dripping um, quickly and immediately, like uh, quickly dripping quickly, meaning like um, uh, a large volume of sap was flowing through the through the tubing, and it started instantaneously. Like you withdraw the drill bit from the tree, and sap comes out with it. So that was promising that this would be a good a good year for producing maple syrup, and so far it has been. One thing that I would recommend for tapping your spiles into the tree, especially if you get the plastic taps from like Amazon or something, is to use a rubber mallet. Um, it is hard plastic. Um, it's somewhat flexible, but if you use a regular uh, metal hammer, you do run the risk of cracking the spile. So by using a rubber mallet just to tap it into that hole, you can avoid damaging your spile like before you get to actually make use of it, which would be infinitely frustrating. If you drill your holes and you get a pretty good run of sap instantaneously, then you probably want to come back and check your buckets, um, you know, 12 hours later, like within the same day, because, um, you know, they can fill up remarkably quickly. Uh, you don't want to, you know, tap them and go in and be like, all right, we're going to go collect the sap three days from now and start the boil and then have your, your buckets overflowing because then you're basically just giving up product at that point. It's a good idea to have a collection vessel, maybe like a large plastic tub or um, a, additional buckets that can hold the aggregate that you're taking from these various trees. And it's not like you you're, every tree is going to produce multiple, you know, five-gallon buckets full of sap every day. But, you know, if, you're, if your buckets are half full, you might want to pour them into, um, into a consolidation vessel and then move them into the, the sugar shack as it is. So that actually brings us to an important part of the process, which is the boiling. And traditionally, especially with large-scale operations, they'll use wood-fired boilers or propane boilers or natural gas or something like that. And... You know, when I say sugar shack, that's, you know, a makeshift building or, a, you know, a, a, an, an outbuilding, a pole barn type of thing that's kind of open, kind of uh, sheltered from, from the elements. Uh, the reason for this is that when you are boiling off all of this water content, you know, anywhere from... 90 to 95% of the of the volume of sap that you've collected, it's going to create a huge amount of steam. One thing you absolutely do not want to do is try to reduce the sap in your kitchen on your stovetop. It will it'll just wreck your house. Your house will be saturated. You'll be living in cloud city. There will be clouds of steam and your ceilings will be dripping. It'll be just a mess. You'll you'll destroy your house for you know a couple of pints of sugar, and that is definitely not an even trade. Um, in my case, in in years past, I would boil over a wood fire. Whenever you do that, traditionally you would have like a flat metal top. Uh, the fire would be you know chimneyed out so that the smoke would be kept away from the boiling sap. I just threw together like a makeshift hearth 
with a metal grate over the top and boiled the sap off in hotel pans, which made the sap exposed to the, the smoke of the wood fire, which gave it like a smoky flavor, which was very pleasant. But I could see that being off-putting to somebody if you just expected like a clean maple syrup flavor and there was like the smoky backdrop to it. It might not be what you were looking for. So if you are going to do like a wood-fired boiler, you want to have a solid metal, you know, sheet metal um, surface uh, and then have a chimney on your hearth to direct the uh, smoke elsewhere. The vessel that you want to boil your sap in ideally will be low and wide. I use a couple of hotel pans as well as a big uh, stock pot just because I, I'm just throwing together whatever I have and using what is, what is available. The hotel pans have a bigger surface area on the top. So as they heat up, the, the boiled water, the water vapor that is escaping can escape from a wider surface area exposed to the air than in a stock pot. So if you can, if you can get together a bunch of, you know, buffet pan type of things to do your boil, that would be ideal, but you can also just do it in the biggest stock pot that you have available. It just will take a little bit longer. As I mentioned in years past, I would do this over a wood fire this year, uh, the, the weather snuck up on me. It wasn't something that I didn't expect it to be 50 degrees in the beginning of uh, February. Normally I tap the trees at the end of February, beginning of March. So we were a couple of weeks early. So I wasn't about to go build a hearth out there and, and, and cut a cord of wood to make maple syrup. So what I have in my barn is just this little range that my grandparents used to use for canning. Yeah, it's a sunbeam electric range. The thing's probably almost 60 years old at this point. And it's still a tank. I use it to heat the water for for scalding chickens, for plucking them. Um, but then you can also yeah, use it for boiling off maple syrup. And then being that it's in the barn, I can open I can open the doors. I can have it you know, ventilated pretty well to avoid uh, too much moisture accumulating in the in the building itself. So that's what we do. And then, you know, I have the I have the range going right now. It's it's simmering away. We'll do it all day, and I check it every couple of hours to top up the sap so that it doesn't overboil or whatever. But you're looking at uh, whatever, however much sap that you collect. I mean, figure on you know having to boil off at least ninety percent of the volume of that water. Think about how long that's going to take. It takes a very long time. It certainly is faster uh, when you use the wood stove because you can get that hotter. Um, you can spread that heat out over a wider area. I'm using you know four little burners. I'm kind of straddling it with different vessels over there, trying to get as much surface area as possible. Now, as you start this boiling process, obviously, you know, with, with your raw sap, if it's fairly clean, doesn't have a lot of debris in it, take a, take a little taste of it. See what it tastes like. It is very slightly sweet. I mean, it has a sweetness to it, but it's very vague. It's like a, it's like, um, if, uh, if LaCroix just made a, a sweet seltzer, you know, where, but it wasn't actually sweet. It was just like someone once explained what sweetness was and then the seltzer water has retained the memory of that <laughs> you know just like a hint a hint of sugar that's what that's what your raw maple sap has and if you look at the imager album uh there's one it, it shows uh, a series of jars from raw sap to finished syrup so you see like the whole spectrum of color from the beginning to end essentially and then as you start cooking this uh, it'll it'll yellow a little bit. It'll look just like dirty water or very weak iced tea or something like that. And at that point, the sweetness will be certainly more profound and more pronounced. 
And then as you as you boil it down further and further and further, um, it takes on a nice, beautiful, like amber brown color. And uh, you, at some point, you will notice that it the the thickness, the viscosity of the syrup has changed from the very watery uh, starting point to getting closer to uh, the syrup at the end. As as you reduce that sap, you need to shorten the increments in which you're checking on it and monitoring it because as you get to a, a higher concentration of sugar, you run the risk of caramelizing, burning, or boiling over the sugar. Uh, you might notice in my picture of the vessels on the stovetop that there is a lot of char on the surface of that little range because one year, one year, I forgot to turn the stove off at night and I basically had a charcoal marshmallow in the morning and it, it was that was coming into like the last day or two of boiling the sap so uh, a couple weeks of tending and managing and topping up and and doing all that stuff just completely ruined in the last day and it was it was heartbreaking but we're back on that horse you know we're making that sap we're making that syrup Anyway, yeah, so you want to keep an eye on that. Also, if you're doing this out in a garage or outside or in a barn or an outbuilding or something like that, once you get to the point where it's like, this is almost maple syrup, at that point, you can bring it into your home. You can run it through some sort of a filter. I like, some people use cheesecloth. Other people use like paper um, coffee filters. I like, I've, I've been using these flour sack cloths. These are like cotton um, towels essentially, um, with no lint. I mean, it's a tight weave and you can pour the liquid through it. It strains and filters better than cheesecloth does. It might be a little less effective than a paper filter, but you know, you don't have to, you can do it a lot quicker. Anyway, pour that through. There will be some, some scum that accumulates on the top, some sediment that accumulates on the bottom. You know, this is the blood of a tree. There's all kinds of stuff in there. <laughs> you know, in, in addition to the sugar content, um, maple syrup also has trace amounts of things like zinc and iron, and mag manganese, um, calcium, uh, other, other little micronutrients and, and minerals and whatever. But yes, yeah, strain or filter your sap into you know, another cooking vessel, a stock pot or something like that. And then you can do that on your stovetop. It will still produce a lot of, of moisture, but no more than like making a big pot of soup or boiling water for pasta or something like that. Turn the exhaust fan on, get that moisture out of your kitchen as quickly as possible. And uh, that allows you to monitor the end stage of reducing your maple syrup um, to an acceptable like thickness and sweetness and color and all that kind of stuff. When you get to that stage, like once, once you've gotten to the point where it's like you're in the home stretch of the boil, you do want to be careful of the temperature at which you're cooking this syrup because higher temperatures, like if it gets over 200 degrees, then obviously on one hand you risk a boil over or scorching, but also the, the additional heat will accelerate the browning reaction in the sugars and it'll make a darker syrup, which a lot of people like, but the way that syrups are graded, the lighter the syrup, the higher the grade. And if you can get an amber, like golden brown color, that's ideal. 
but you know some of that is personal preference a lot of what i've seen is that uh you're because of the sugar content you're not going to get like a, a rolling boil on this until you've uh cooked off a good amount of the water so a lot of the uh the evaporation is going to happen in the 185 to 200 degree range and then as it reduces you have to be careful to not exceed that whereas early on you know you can blast this with a an arc welder <laughs> and it's going to dissipate the heat very quickly and it's it, it's hard to get it up to a hard boil let's uh just touch quickly on the actual sugar content of like what we're dealing with here uh, the sugar that is in maple syrup is sucrose. Um, the other forms of sugar you have like fructose and glucose, which are, you know, they're all, they're all sugars, but they're, the different names are based on a different size and shape of the molecule. And if I, if I'm correct, I, may, I might be mistaken on some of this, but um, sucrose is like your table sugar. And it's sort of like a combination or hybrid of fructose and glucose. So whenever you consume it, your, your body has to like break it into its glucose and fructose components. And I believe fructose is metabolized by the liver before it becomes glucose in the bloodstream. So because there's these intermediate intermediate steps of metaboli metabolization, metabolizing <laughs> the sugar, maple syrup has a lower glycemic index than fructose um, and and less than that of pure glucose, but a lot of times glucose is bound up in the fiber of fruit, which uh, slows its absorption into the bloodstream. So like fruit sugars and maple sugar is, uh, uh, I mean, marginally healthier than fructose, you know, it's certainly better than high fructose corn syrup, you know, that's going to spike your insulin levels very quickly. Whereas maple uh, will be a little bit slower and a little uh, kind of uh, rounds that, that blood sugar curve a little bit. So it's very nice. In addition to maple syrup, if you are so inclined, you can continue reducing and cooking that syrup down until it gets to a candy stage. At that point, I mean, you're, you're using, you need to employ the use of a candy thermometer and, you know, have, have a, a protocol for, for how you're going to um, process and package it. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a, a pot full of rock-hard maple uh, candy in the bottom. But uh, you can take this to a candy stage. You can break that up and actually make maple sugar if you want, like, a solid product or whatever. It's fantastic. As far as storage is concerned, depending on how much you make, long-term storage may be uh, something that you'd be interested in. Um, if you're just making, you know, a, a quart of it, you can put it into a mason jar or a bottle or something like that and keep it in the fridge and you'll be fine for, you know, the amount of time that it takes for you to consume that, which because it is so delicious and because you made it yourself will be very quick. Like you will, you'll want to just guzzle this on everything. You'll be putting it on mashed potatoes. You'll put it on baked potatoes. You'll be putting it on scallop potatoes. You'll be like, man, sugar on potatoes. It's the new hottest thing. <laughs> but if you make a whole bunch of it, uh, you'll want to preserve it and, and keep it for a long period of time. And the way that, I mean, I've seen this very consistently because when it comes to canning, you got to be careful. You don't want to give bad advice because you know, botulism will kill you in a horrific, in a horrific death process that nobody wants to experience. So you don't want to give bad canning advice. But, you know, looking at various sources and just this is the way that I've done it in the past. And then I confirmed it ahead of recording this episode because, you know, I didn't want to say something that wasn't technically accurate. 
but you heat the you heat the syrup to 185 degrees you wash and sterilize your jars you know by by boiling them for like 10 minutes and then you pour the hot syrup into the hot jar you place the lid on the top you screw the ring down unlike water bath canning where you just do like finger tight so that uh, you get a little bit of that siphoning of the air inside of the jar to get a vacuum seal on that. Um, you can actually tighten these down as, as tight as you can with your hands and then flip them upside down. This, this is where it gets into the old, like when you're doing other types of canning, like jellies and jams and stuff, the old timey method was to pour the hot stuff into the jar, turn it upside down for five minutes and then, uh, uh, what would it be? If you invert it for fifteen or for five minutes, when you flip it back over, it's like you're uninverting it. But I don't remember what the actual word is. I can't think of what the word is for flipping it right side up. Anyway, old ladies have been canning jelly like that forever. That is not the proper way to do so. I believe if you look at like the ball canning guide, it'll say you know actually water bath canning jams and jellies and stuff like that. But I didn't find that. In fact, some of these sources said to specifically not water bath can jars of maple syrup and to heat the syrup to 185 sanitize the jars fill them while they're both hot do the inversion flip them back over the uh, the lids will pop down if they don't pop down keep them in the fridge if they do pop down you look at you're looking at like um two years of a shelf stable uh product at that point and like I said, I've been doing it this way for you know eight years. I looked at three or four different sources on this on the internet, and they all basically had the same uh, methodology. And one of them specifically said not to water bath can them. So that's a that's an easy way to preserve your maple syrup. Now, after a while, you know, when you break out that third, fourth, fifth, twelfth jar, you may notice uh, like a cloudy bloom in the bottom. Um, that is not, it look, it may look like a, a, a fungal infection, but it is not, it is a, a sugar sand. It's like, it's kind of like the, um, the, uh, crystallization of honey, you know, whenever honey gets all cloudy and has the, sh the, the wavy, wavy gravy going through it with maple syrup, because there is water content and because it's going from hot to, to cooling. Um, I guess this sugar sand phenomenon is uh, relatively common. It's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt anything. It'll gravity will pull it down to the bottom of the jar. So in in addition to the sugar sand, you might also have uh, sediment at the bottom of the jar because you know you you're starting with a raw material. There is going to be sediment in there, and you're probably not going to go through like a HEPA filtration. You know, I pour it through a flour sack cloth once, and I'm like, hey, that's good enough. <laughs> You know, you could, you could filter it multiple times and you're still probably going to get a little bit of sediment on the bottom. That's just the rustic charm of a homemade, uh, good, you know? So don't, don't fear the sediment. Don't fear the reaper. Now, last point now, this is getting a little bit meta, but I was thinking about this the past couple of days and it's like, you know, I've been doing this podcast for you know, almost a year at this point. And the brand sort of is farm to table cooking or making things like ridiculously homemade. I mean, my, my favorite episode is the, uh, caramel apple cheesecake that I made at the, I was like, in, I think September of last year where every component was homemade. So it was, it was a, a week long process to make this delicious cheesecake that came out perfect. It was like, I, I was really impressed with myself <laughs> with that. But a lot of times if you if you just dip into an episode and you listen to it, like, my God, who 
why do you do this? You know, like, it's like, yeah, I understand eggs are expensive and, and, and you, know, you have price inflation with all different classes of food products and stuff like that, but you can still get really good maple syrup for, you know, less than 20 bucks, like less than you, what you would spend on plastic tubing and spiles. You can get, you know, a professionally produced maple syrup that is pure maple syrup. It's not like, I mean, yeah, there's adulterated products. There's the, there's the faux maple syrups that are corn syrup and and coloring and flavor or whatever but you can get really good professionally made products like this without having to do it yourself so what is the what is the purpose what is the point and you know adam smith the you know sort of the the, the father of modern modern economics he introduced a concept of comparative advantage i think i think it was adam smith in the wealth of nations but i'm not positive but we're going to run with that one where, you know, if you have a, a country like Ghana that is uh, well situated near the equator to produce pineapples, and then you have a state like Vermont, which is you know cold and wintry and is well situated to produce maple syrup, then it's better for Ghana to produce pineapples and for Vermont to produce maple syrup and for them to trade those goods with each other. It's less reasonable for people in Vermont to start up a pineapple industry and for people in Ghana to start up, you know, maple groves. And that is true on the macro scale. And that is true for, for cost effectiveness and, and, and convenience and uh, kind of a cultural expertise in certain industries. But, but I do like the idea that, you know, this is a, a sentiment expressed by Steve Jobs, where he says, if you look out there, look at the world. Everything that isn't natural, you know, everything that is manufactured, somebody made that. That exists because someone created it. Somebody brought it into being. You know, I'm looking, I'm sitting here in this office and there's a computer monitor over there on that, on that credenza. And it's like that, that thing is the, the result of somebody developing, you know, backlit LED technology and these these response times and the, the 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 range of colors and the shrinking of pixels and all that stuff. But somebody did that. And in some cases, a lot of people did that. But the fact is, is that no matter how complex something is, it's not unknowable. So, you know, whenever I see all these comments on Reddit and on, on Twitter and different places where somebody's like, hey, look, I made maple syrup this week. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't know it came out of the tree clear or that you had to cook off, you know, gallons and gallons of water. It's not, not putting those people down for not knowing that, but it's like, now that is a known thing to them. They've discovered that. And then they're, they're one step closer to like, well, okay, so that's how it works. I can do that. Like I can, I know how to do that. And I'm not saying that you're necessarily going to become a professional you know, maple syrup manufacturer or anything like that. You're not going to make this your livelihood. You might do it once. You might make it part of your routine. It's like, hey, every spring we tap a few trees. We make some maple syrup. It's fantastic. Maybe you do it once. Maybe you do it a lot. Maybe you just think, yeah, that's a fun, fun episode of the cooking show. But, you know, I got 20 bucks. I got a giant eagle. I'm going to go buy some, you know. Um, but I do like the idea of knowing that in the unforeseen future, if something bad were to happen, if something were to disrupt the ability of people to uh, companies to make maple syrup, that if you've got maple trees and you've got a source of heat, you can still have that, that nicety, that, that, uh, that sweet delight, something that is a treat, something that, 
that kind of takes the edge off of, of, of the hardness of living day to day to day to day, you know, like having, having maple syrup on a pancake is a lot better than having a pancake without the maple syrup, just having a raw pancake. <laughs> <laughs> An unadorned pancake is is not the most delightful thing that you can consume in the morning. We're having a little bit to drizzle into, uh, you know, a breakfast sausage. Like we made sausage on this on this podcast. I think it was called Sausage Party or something like that. And breakfast sausage you know, with a little addition of maple syrup is fantastic. And it's like just having the experience and doing it once and demystifying the process, even if it doesn't lead to you doing it that way all the time. At least you know that, you know, if push comes to shove and you're in a, in a situation where things are not as good as they are now, you can still create these little luxuries on your own and, and enjoy um, uh, the peace and tranquility of, a, of, a, of an early or of a late winter morning with, with warm maple syrup and homemade breakfast sausage and, uh, you know, pancakes from your own milled flour or whatever like that. <laughs> you know, if you have, if you're forced into a situation of living that little house on the prairie life, you don't have to learn everything at crunch time. <laughs> and that is, that is very important to have something in your back pocket. I'd rather have it, not need it than need it, not have it. It took me a while. My eyeball hurts. It's very hard to think. It's hard to look. And now I have to go in and sit in front of a 32 inch monitor and edit this podcast while it feels like I have a nail in the side of my head, but it's cool. It's all good uh, because I have delicious maple syrup to, to, uh, to ease my pain this afternoon. All right. So that's it. That's maple syrup. Listen, it's one ingredient. It was, well, it's, it's three ingredients. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's maple sap, it's heat and it's patience and attention. But at the end, it's pure sugar. All right. All right. Talk to you guys later.